Why have a conference on discernment? Benny Hinn can get 20,000 people in a meeting, and for a discernment conference, we get 200. So that really answers the question, doesn't it? And I think that uh, Don Matsat addresses this in a recent uh, Issues Etc. journal. Uh, he says this, We did a program on pornography. A listener called in and said, I'm getting sick and tired of the sexual innuendos that are in our hymns that we sing in church. Huh? I replied. What are you talking about? This past Sunday, he complained we sang about the angels' prostrates falling. I started to laugh. I think you are confusing prostrate with prostate. I tried to explain after becoming semi-composed. Prostrate means to fall on your face. Oh, never mind, he said and hung up. Matsat says, honestly, folks, I'm not making this one up. He was serious. And so we have a conference on discernment. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Our reading, you're hearing the words of the Lord Jesus Christ from verses 1 through 6, and we'll shift then over to verse 15 and read from verse 15 through verse 20. Matthew 7, beginning with verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a, a, a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. We must realize at the outset that the words judge, judgment, discern, and discernment really all come from the same root word, the Greek word krino. So whether you're dealing with judge or judgment or discern or discernment, you're really dealing with the same thing. So we don't have to get them confused. At first glance, as we read Matthew chapter 7, it appears, at least on the surface, that the Lord Jesus Christ catches himself in a glaring and massive contradiction. And as Jim mentioned, people are troubled by this. We find in verse 1, judge not. But yet in verses 6, 15, and 16, he seems to be saying, but you must judge swine. You must judge dogs, the fruit of false prophets. And so, since this is a conference on discernment, we need to understand and reconcile what seems to be, to some, a contradiction. Churches have split 
over the judge do not judge issues. Churches have been torn apart over judge, don't judge. They've polarized around these issues. And of course, the inconsistency is that often the don't judge faction is really judging the judge faction as being judgmental. So I would say that an understanding of all of this is very, very crucial for all of us. Now, the first thing that we'd agree on is that there is a massive, massive problem in the American church on the basic issue of even how do we arrive at truth. We've got a massive problem, folks, on the issue of how we arrive at truth. I have the privilege of uh, teaching some courses at an evening Adult Bible Institute up near Trenton, New Jersey. And one of the courses that I teach is church history. And I call the church of the 90s the confused church. It is the confused church. In one of our southern states, an ignorant fellow felt that he had been called to preach the gospel. So he applied for admission to the ministry and submitted himself to an examination by fellow ministers. And the examination proceeded as followed. Can you read? No, sir. Can you write? No, sir. Well, do you know the Bible? Yes, sir. I know the Bible from lid to lid. What part of the Bible do you like best? I like the New Testament. But what part of the New Testament do you like? Well, sir, I like the book of parables. Which of the parables do you like best? Well, I like the one about the Good Samaritan the best. Well, tell us about the Good Samaritan. Yes, sir. Once upon a time, a man went down from Jerusalem and fell among the thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked the man. And he went away and did not have any money. So he met the queen of Sheba, and she gave him a thousand talents of gold at a hundred changes of raiment. Then he got in a chariot and drove furiously. And when he was driving along under a tree, his hair caught on a limb and left him hanging there. Then Jesus came along and said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down from there. <laughs> but he hung there three days and three nights, and the ravens brought him food and drink. One night, while he was hanging there, his wife Delilah came along and cut off his hair. And he, and he dropped and fell on stony ground. It began to rain. It rained 40 days and 40 nights. So he hid himself in the cave of Adullam. There he met a man who said, come and take supper with me. He said, I can't. I married a wife and can't come. So he ate some of the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table while the dogs licked his sores. Then he went to Jerusalem. When he got there, he saw Queen Jezebel sitting high up on a window. When, he saw, when she saw him, she laughed at him. Then he said, throw her down from there. And they threw her down. Throw her down some more. And they threw her down 70 times 7. <laughs> the dogs came along and licked his sores. And of the fragments that remained, they picked up 12 baskets full. <laughs> now, Parson, what I want to know is this. Whose wife will she be in the judgment? That's the state we're in. Virginia Mollencott can identify herself as an evangelical lesbian feminist. I don't even want to be an evangelical anymore. Nobody even knows what an evangelical is anymore. This, the church is in a very, very confused state. 
There's an old story told in the Talmud of two men who were lost at sea. They're out there in a boat, and all of a sudden, one of the men takes a, a hand drill out of his backpack, and he starts drilling through the floor under the seat of his boat. The friend says, what are you doing? He said, leave me alone. This is my end of the boat. But I think the point is plain, you see. We're all tarred with the same brush. As the lost see the confusion, we get some of the blame. We are in this together. We're all in the same boat, like it or not. Your end of the boat is mine. It's obvious that some arrive at truth like the poem, Why Are Fire Engines Red? Why are fire engines red? They have four wheels and eight men. Four plus eight is twelve. Twelve inches makes a ruler. A ruler is Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth sails the seven seas. The seven seas have fish. The fish have fins. The fins hate the Russians. The Russians are red. Fire engines are always Russian, so they're red. How can people justify going to worship meetings and barking and howling and clucking like chickens and, and braying like donkeys and conduct church like a barnyard in the presence of an awesome and holy God? The answer? Animals are in the Bible. Why are fire engines red? Is my reply. Next, we'll have someone say, well, you know, Richard Nixon's problems were all prophesied in the Bible. There it is, Nehemiah 3.26. It says the Watergate, doesn't it? <laughs> a rabbi who was caught in the middle of a debate with two members of his congregation uh, had the first man come to him and, 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 and ask for some kind of a ruling, a judgment, and he said to the man, you are right. A little later, the second man came in private and talked to the rabbi, and the rabbi said to him, you are right. And his wife happened to see both of these things and came to her husband and said, they can't both be right. He said, you are right. <laughs> and I think the point of that is that not everyone can be right. There cannot be two contradictory truths or three contradictory truths. Truth is truth. Now, as we think of Matthew chapter 7 and related passages, we remember again, as I stated, that judge, judgment, discern, discernment, all come from the same Greek root, which is krino. Very important to remember that. We'll be using that all throughout. So let's look at four major points this afternoon. First of all, there is what I'm calling the lack of discernment. The lack of discernment. There is this abysmal lack of discernment in the church of Jesus Christ today. There is a massive, massive lack of even a desire to discern. If somebody wants to write a good book on discernment, title it The Death of Discernment. Just give me credit for the title, that's all. The death of discernment. Now, you all know there are four hairstyles for men. 
There's parted, unparted. If you have a wig, it's imparted. And if you're like me, it's departed. <laughs> the Old Testament says that at times the Spirit of God departed from the people of God. We have that mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. God's Spirit departed. Discernment has departed from the church at large. It ought to grieve us. It ought to trouble us. Discernment has departed. Now, there are reasons that we could point to. First of all, the first reason, I believe, is that we have become so man-centered, so experience-oriented, so experience-driven, that Christianity has to be like Disney World. Alan Moeller, in the book, The Coming Evangelical Crisis, says the massive cultural shifts have so altered the American landscape and have changed the most fundamental assumptions embodied in our culture. And to borrow a phrase from Paul, uh, Peter Berger, the plausibility structures that shape the, the way Americans think. Americans are now fanatic devotees of the cult of self-fulfillment. Fanatic devotees of, of the cult of self-fulfillment and personal autonomy. The language of theology has been replaced by the vocabulary of the therapeutic. All issues of meaning are reduced where possible to questions of personal significance. Truth is marginalized where it is not outright rejected. Relativism masquerades as pluralism and the idols of television, infotainment, and consumerism portray a world of unconditional and unlimited choices. So what, what goes today is you've got to entertain me, you've got to make me feel good, you've got to make me laugh, you've got to make me high, or I go shopping for another church that will. It's like McDonald's. Just go to the restaurant down the road, you know. And in fact, I just got this out of uh, an advertisement out of Christianity Today this week. Here is uh, your instruction manual for the 21st century. Lyle Schaller says, this is your instruction manual for the church in the 21st century. I say, whatever happened to the Bible as the instruction manual for the 21st century? A book entitled Entertainment Evangelism. Entertainment evangelism shows you how to make the worship service an appealing, uplifting, yes, entertaining experience. And I say, poor Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. He should have had this book. He's down there on his face. Woe is me. This poor guy, he's not being entertained at all. Secondly, we are losing the knowledge of proper hermeneutics. Hermeneutics today is reduced to one sentence. The Spirit told me. That's the hermeneutic of the 21st century. We're losing sense of proper hermeneutics. Thirdly, we have bought the philosophy that truth is relative. Francis Schaeffer tried to alert us, but not many were listening. David Wells lays it out. So very vividly in his books, No Place for Truth and God in the Wasteland. If you haven't read them, read them. In some, some senses, they're frightening books to read. More recently, Dennis McCallum shows in his book, The Death of Truth, that postmodernism 
rejects reason and rationality, and he shows in no uncertain terms why postmodernism itself is unreasonable and irrational. And then fourthly, by and large, evangelicalism does not believe in the sufficiency of the scriptures for sanctification. I didn't say inerrancy. Oh, we're all going to, oh, we believe in the inerrant, infallible word of God without error, you know, in the original autographs. All of us confess that. But the church at large no longer believes in the sufficiency of scripture for sanctification. It's the issue of sufficiency. They do not believe that the Bible, the Scriptures, are adequate for godliness and maturity. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16 and 17 would say, yes it is. It can outfit you unto all good works. It can bring you to maturity. It is what you need for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. The church no longer believes that. And... 2 Peter 1 would agree. It would, it would affirm that the promises of God give us what we need for life and godliness. In a 1988 Journal of Pastoral Practice article entitled Puritan Resources for Biblical Counseling, Timothy Keller, Westminster Theological Seminary, details in 31 pages how the Puritan writers were committed to what they called the functional authority of the Scriptures. The functional authority of the Scriptures. For them... The scriptures were the comprehensive manual dealing with all problems of the human heart. And so it kind of looks like this. It looks like Hagar and Dr. Zook. Dr. Zook, my head is stuffy. My body aches and I feel sluggish. A demon has entered your body feeding on your entrails. What? He says, well, either that or you have a cold. And so, Neil Anderson and Mark Bubeck and Mr. Dickerson, when pressed to the wall, will say, no, we really can't prove from the Bible that Christians can have indwelling demons. Then why teach it if you can't prove it from the Bible? Or we really can't prove that they have to check themselves out for the demons of their ancestors, you know, their ancestral demons. But, we must go to the, quote, clinical evidence. And it all sounds so medical. And it all sounds so scientific. But the term clinical evidence is shorthand for their experiences or their interpretation of their experiences. And I don't want to hear that. I don't want my experience to lead me to truth. I want my experiences judged by the truth. Mark Bubeck finds a colon and nausea demon in his 11-year-old daughter. And that's why in Dave Pallinson's book, Power Encounters, he says that this new exorcistic mentality is spawning mutant spiritualities. How much stronger can you say it? It really is indeed spawning mutant spiritualities. And so the vineyard and the word faith people and large parts of the evangelical world are merging with an extra-biblical Gnosticism, an extra-biblical mysticism, and they're all quoting one another as experts, 
for their justification for what they do and say. Jay Adams, in almost prophetic fashion 10 years ago, said in his book, A Call to Discernment, these words. Because we're infected with what he calls continuum thinking. According to continuum thinking, the mode of thinking taught outside the church and largely within, every idea is a shade of gray. There is no right or wrong, true or false, only shades of right and wrong, and shades of true or false spread along a continuum. The poles of that continuum are extended so far out toward the wings that for all practical purposes they are unattainable and therefore worthless. Nothing then is wholly right or wrong. All is relative, most of it is subjective. That is one reason why biblical preaching with its sharp antithesis rubs many people the wrong way. It is hard for modern minds to accept. For a long time now, educational institutions, newspapers, magazines, radio, TV, etc., have inculcated continuum thinking. Antithetical thinking is dismissed as fanatical or worse. Consequently, when Christians, all of whom have been affected by their environment, hear antithetical views expressed, they sound discordant. And indeed they are, because anything goes, and discernment is not placed at a premium. Not only will you find such antithetical teaching and much more on nearly every page of the Bible, but even the construction of the Hebrew language itself seems designed to teach antithesis. Much scriptural poetry, many proverbs, even some narrative is antithetical in structure. Perhaps you've wondered about the principle underlying the clean-unclean distinctions in the Old Testament. Various rationales have been given uh, for some of these distinctions, yet many seem to be purely arbitrary. May I suggest that all problems of arbitrariness are resolved when you see that the unclean, clean system is a means of alerting the Jew to the fact that all day long, every day, in whatever he does, he must consciously choose God's way. Choices about food, clothing, farming, techniques, justice, health care, holidays, our methods of worship were made either God's way or some other way. In other words, the clean-unclean system was designed to develop in God's people an antithetical mentality. Forbidding the mixing of materials and clothing, for example, doesn't seem so arbitrary after all when considered in the light of the biblical concern to create an antithetical posture toward life. Adams was a bit ahead of his time, I think, on that. A man was visiting New York City. He passed a shop. There was a large sign in the window of the shop which said, used brains for sale. He said, I got to see this. So he went into the shop and he said, I wanted to ask about your sign out there. So the guy took him in the back room and there were all these jars of, of brains and big bottles of formaldehyde. And they had prices, they had price tags on them. So he saw one that was marked 250. He said, what is that? He said, that's a brain of a doctor. He saw another one. It was marked 500. He said, well, what's that one? He said, well, that's a rocket scientist. And then he saw another one. It had $3,500 on it. He said, well, what's that one? He said, that's a TV evangelist. He said, how come so much? He said, well, it's hardly used. But you do know, you do know that our modern gospel does look like this, don't you? 
that all you got to do is sign on the dotted line and you can have that uh, salvation, you can have that, all the money you want, you can have that new body, you know, that we all long for, that new home and that new car. That's, you just get everything you want. In spite of Romans 8, of course, uh, there it is, just sign on the dotted line and it's really all yours. That's our modern gospel. Benny Hinn was promising his followers that um, September 2nd was the big day. He said, in August, I have this heavy anointing, and on September 2nd, I'm going to pray, and we're going to break the curse of poverty of all your finances. We are going to set you free from financial bondage and debt on September 2nd. And, oh, by the way, you have to send a letter and list your bondages down, and, of course, you must enclose some money on September 2nd, he broke some of his bondages off. And, of course, he prayed over this stack of letters that he said he received to break off the spiritual bondage. Very, very sad. Daily Bread devotional back in November. A New York City couple received through the mail two tickets to a smash Broadway hit. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Oddly, the gift arrived without a note, and they wondered who sent it, but they attended the show and enjoyed it immensely. However, returning to their apartment, they discovered that their bedroom had been ransacked. Valuable furs and jewels were missing. On the pillow was a note, now you know. Like the nameless thief, a false teacher knows what appeals to our desires. Second Peter 2. He doesn't wear a lapel pin to warn of his lies. He comes disguised as a representative of the truth, claims he will enrich lives, but those who follow him will learn at a high cost that they have been deceived. Need I say more? I think we'd all agree that there is a massive lack of discernment in the church today. That's why we have a conference like this. However, let me say that biblically, if we're reading the Bible correctly and in balance, there is also what I would call the liberty of discernment. The liberty of discernment. Now, you have in Matthew 7, as we've read, judge not. But then you have judge. Don't judge, judge. What do we do? How do we reconcile those two extremes? Well, we reconcile those two extremes by following the biblical middle. Not being extremists, but following the biblical middle in balance. Matthew seven fifteen to 20 seems very clear. We are to judge false prophets. We are to judge their message. We are to judge their fruit. Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test everything and hold fast to that which is good. And what Jesus is saying on balance is we cannot judge a person's motives. I think that's what he means by specs in, in the context of uh, Matthew 7. But we can judge their message. I don't care about their motives. We can judge their message. Ralph Walter, in his book, Tortured Texts, explains. Consider the, the Greek word krino, translated judge. If you look at the concordance of the King James Version, you'll find the words been translated conclude, condemn, damn, decree, determine, esteem, ordain, think, and then judge 87 times. Other Greek scholars say that krino means to call into question, to decree, to esteem, to determine, to think, to sentence, or pass sentence. From all of this, I would, it would be safe to say that the word that our Lord uses to condemn or pass judgment in Matthew 7, 1 has to do with passing malicious judgment, while the context shows 
that I have to properly evaluate a thing or an act. I evaluate it responsibly. I've often tried to show the difference between condemning and evaluating by using the illustration of a dirty car. I have the ability to evaluate the car's condition. It's dirty. But to say that it is dirty because the owner is lazy or too lazy to wash it is to condemn the owner unjustly. He may be sick or too poor to have it washed. You probably know of some people who, that, who constantly volunteer their judgment on everyone and everything that people do. They lose the respect and friendship of all who know them and they judge them as our Lord said would happen. We must be careful about stretching the verse beyond the Lord's intention. Are you aware that every second epistle has to do with apostasy? That the theme of every second epistle, the major theme of every second epistle is apostasy. The scripture writers judged certain things. They judged them in an outspoken way, especially apostasy, especially false doctrine, especially false teaching. Anyone who disdains good doctrine or doctrinal preaching or teaching disdains Christianity. 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul warns about Demas. 2 Timothy 2.17, Paul warns about Hymenaeus and Philetus. Paul did a lot of judging. We could say that Paul had a balanced crino ministry. I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for almost 30 years. Sheep are so prone to wander. And wolves are so prone to pillage and destroy. We must evaluate. Watchmen and shepherds must warn, must warn defenseless sheep. We must do that in accordance with Acts chapter 20. Now, one of the, I think the, the big keys to discernment is found in John chapter 7. I'd like you to turn there. John chapter 7. John chapter 7, and the verse that we're looking at is verse 24. Jesus says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Judge with righteous judgment. You see, appearance, the word appearance here, has to do with kind of a superficial glance, a superficial seeing. And again, the problem is that the word crino can be used in different ways, in different contexts, in different settings. So the big issue is context. Jesus here is saying we must judge, but we must judge righteously. We must judge without maliciousness, having the facts. Righteous judgment is judgment having the facts. The word righteous, the long Greek word, means conforming to God's revealed will. Conforming to God's truth. We must judge righteously. We must judge righteous judgment. We could call this factual judgment. It's like the old Dragnet series. Joe Friday. 
He used to say, I just want the facts, man. I just want the facts. Just the facts, man. Just the facts. And you know, Kurt and I are always checking up on one another. Do we have the facts? Do we have the documentation? Does the documentation show something contrary to Scripture? Contrary to the truth of God's Word? Do we have the facts? And have we laid it against the Word of God? Does it conform or does it not conform to the revealed will of God? Does it conform or not conform to God's truth? And so Benny Hinn's attorney called us up, threatened us with a lawsuit. We said, look, here's what we'll do. You show us where our facts are wrong and we will publicly retract. And we never heard from him again. Proverbs, what's it say? Get the facts. Jot this verse down. Proverbs 18.13. Get the facts. Get the facts. Proverbs 18.13. He that answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly and a shame. Get the facts. Proverbs 7.4. Jot it down. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin. So there's no dilemma here when we realize that Matthew 7.1 is condemning malicious, uninformed, nitpicking, censoriousness. That's Matthew 7.1, judging without facts. It's playing around with specs, not real issues, not biblical issues. In fact, it might really look like this. Your Honor, this man was caught splitting an infinitive eating junk food and taking up too much room in a pew. I had a fellow who left my church. You know why he left my church? I chewed gum. I'm serious. He judged me unfit for the ministry because I chewed gum. I said to him, you know, if it's a problem, it's a big deal for you. I won't, I won't chew it in church, you know. I just won't chew gum. If it's a, you know, he has his kind of conscience, he's got a problem or something. I was willing to forego my liberty of chewing gum, but he wouldn't hear it. I was unfit for the ministry. I chewed gum. It's part of the reason I lost my hair. I was all waves at one time, then it waved, it waved goodbye, you know. It was all waves and it was all beach. Let's uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians 6. Verse 3. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? how much more things that pertain to this life. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are at least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame, it is so, that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren. See, they, they, they were falling into the, totally into the, other extreme, don't judge, never judge anything, never make any evaluations. You have just lost Matthew 18 when you fall into that category. Matthew 18 demands judging. 
And if you lay Matthew 18 alongside of 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, and I think you always ought to do that, I think it dictates and demands that when sin is of a serious nature and you have taken others and that sin is public and provable and blatant and there's no repentance, we must keep moving the steps along. As grievous as it is, as much as we hurt, as much as we pray and cry before God, as much as we long for restoration, as horrible as it is, as difficult as it is, we must move it along in obedience to Jesus Christ. Is it the loving thing to do? Yes, it is, because we, we, we can't love more than God loves, and God gives us that, that procedure. And then let me just throw in something else that maybe have helped you here. And we don't have to turn there, but you're all aware that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there is this discussion of elders. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, there is this discussion of elders. And uh, in that discussion of elders in 1 Timothy 3, there is a whole series of things about which you must make judgments. Evaluation of elders. Right? But if, if we see there what God wants us to see, we can see that we can judge qualifications for ministry that are external. And please make that distinction. We can judge qualifications, external qualifications for ministry. We judge certain external qualifications. Is he hospitable? Kind of, that's kind of easy to see. Is he argumentative? That's kind of easy to see. Is he a good teacher? Is he the husband of one wife? Etc., etc. The obvious externals, we must evaluate them and judge them, and we must make some conclusions. But we cannot judge qualities or internal motivations. Only God can. Only God sees the heart. And so, Peter, feed my sheep. External qualifications. Is that man doctrinally sound? Is he biblically sound? Is he preparing that food? What kind of table is he laying out there? I, I think you can make evaluations about uh, how a man is feeding the flock, whether he's feeding them junk food, poison food, or good food. External qualifications. But Peter, do you love me? Internal motivation, qualities that you, 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 you don't know. You don't know the depth of that love. Titus gives external qualifications to judge leaders, but in 1 Timothy 4, 16, it says judge yourself. Inner qualities, inner motivations, your love for God, your attitude. 1 Peter 5, you must serve God out of a willing heart, internal quality, motivation. Only you know that. Sometimes we don't even know why we're serving God. And we have to pray, God, will you please keep my motivations pure? Half of the time my heart is so deceitful, I don't even know why I'm doing this. I want to be doing it for you, but I don't always know that I am. And God, will you just keep purifying and cleansing my motives? Serve God out of a willing heart. But Peter says, but not in the ministry for money, not in the ministry for gain. And so if a person is living this excessive, lavish lifestyle, it may be a tip-off. In fact, 
In fact, the guy gets to the gates of heaven. It says, you had more money than God. That's a big no-no. So, I, I think that seeing the difference between um, external qualifications and qualities or internal motivation clears up a lot and helps us to distinguish in context how the word judge is used in various texts of the New Testament. So, on balance, we're seeing there is a massive lack of discernment in the Church of Jesus Christ, but there is properly understood a liberty of discernment for the church of Jesus Christ. The word judges crino, Campbell Morgan in Matthew 7, 1 says it forbids censoriousness. For instance, I bring my wife flowers. Haven't done that in a long time. She says, oh, you've come home drunk again, huh? <laughs> she says, love believes all things, hopes all things. Oh, these wonderful flowers, bud. Isn't that wonderful? I'm so glad you're so... You're such a wonderful husband. You brought me flowers. Or she could say, okay, what do you want now? Right? What are you up to now? What's this all about? I don't think she can do that. I think she's got to believe all things and hope all things. Don't you? I don't think she can bear false witness against me. And trump up motivations that I may not even have. I think in good faith she must say, I'm so grateful that he cared enough to bring me flowers. I think that's the difference. Jesus insists on careful discrimination. Morgan says, Crino has a variety of applications. The particular sense of Crino must be determined by the context. So sometimes you judge, sometimes you don't judge depending on what you're talking about. When you do, it must be based on fact, it must be based on the Word of God, not speculation, not trying to discern another person's motivation or motives. Kittle's Theological Dictionary translates crino as investigate, interrogate, inquire, distinguish. That's pretty heavy stuff. And so, it is always always, always right based on the authority of Jesus Christ to judge false teaching on the authority and basis of the Word of God. Don't back down. They call you heresy hunter. They can call you whatever they like, but it is always right to judge false teaching and false teachers on the basis of the truth of Scripture. If we don't do it, who's going to do it? Nitpicking is one thing, but removing rotten fruit is another. I don't worry too much about rashes, but I worry a lot about cancer. So I, I, I think we've got to attend to cancer and some of the rashes. We just let go and they clear themselves up. What I'm saying, I think, is that we've got to be discerning about our discernment. All right, let me, let me move on. There is a, a third thing here. And it is what I'm calling the labor of discernment. The labor of discernment. Daniel Doriani, in his book Getting the Message, says, to develop any powerful and rewarding skill is to pay a price. 
In the movie A League of Their Own, which presents life in the Women's Baseball League of the 1940s, the star catcher on the team decides to quit just before the league championships. It's just too hard, she explains. The manager ignites. It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. The manager got it exactly right, both for baseball and for Bible exposition. If you want to rise above mediocrity and reach excellence, this is the time to count the cost. It is hard to teach the Bible faithfully and accurately. Precisely for that reason, not many do it. We're hearing an awful lot today about the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit. It's all very wonderful. Whatever happened to the gift of discernment? It happens to be one of the gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. It's called the gift of discernment. Read my lips. (laughs) Now, discernment, crino. Discern, crino. But a little different twist. Discernment, remember, is a gift from God. A gift from God. Anacrino, diacrino. A little bit of a nuance of difference. Anacrino, to separate out so as to investigate and to examine. You know who has the gift of discernment? It's not the people that stand up on TV and say, Oh, I see a backache out there being healed. That's, not, that's nothing. That's just statistical scamming is what it is. Countercult ministries have the gift of discernment. You know why? Because they're called of God to separate out so as to investigate and to examine. Diacrino, to learn to discriminate, to decide based on evidence. Why don't we hear more about that one? Well, I want to tell you something. We've said the labor of discernment, this is work. This is work, the labor of discernment. We've got to put in the work of knowing God's Word. Study to show yourself approved. Workmen. That word indicates you're going to break a sweat. Workmen. D.A. Carson says, I have no easy answer to this dilemma, but we will not go far astray if we approach the Bible with a humble mind and then resolve to focus on central truths. Gradually, we'll build up our exegetical skills by even-handed study, a reverent, prayerful determination to become like workmen who correctly handle the Word of God. We've got to know the rules. We've got to dust off the hermeneutical textbooks. Dust off those hermeneutical textbooks. Henry Verkler says hermeneutics is the identification of the principles used to properly interpret someone else's communication. As used within a seminary setting, hermeneutics is the study of the principles necessary to interpret God's Word correctly. Hermeneutics is not something that we use only in the rarefied atmosphere of academia. It is the codification of processes we use constantly at some level to understand others. Hermeneutics is particularly important as we study Scripture because there are significant historical, cultural, linguistic, 
philosophical differences between ourselves and the people to whom God originally gave the Bible. One of the basic rules I'm sure you all know is context. 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 It's one of the basic rules. R.A. Torrey says, too much importance cannot be laid upon a close study of, of the context. And every cult going has cheated people out of the context, right? Todd says, consideration of the context in examining any verse or passage is of the, most, uh, of the utmost importance. Failure to do this is one of the causes of misinterpretation of Scripture. Moyer says, too many preachers prepare a message and then hunt for a text to fit it. That's not a text. It's a pretext. Lockhart says, the context is the key to meaning. Hartill says, the Bible can be made to prove anything, but not when studied in the light of context. Milton Terry, many a passage will not be understood at all without the help afforded by the context, for many a sentence derives all its points and force from the connection in which it stands. Fair, Bible words must be understood according to the requirements of the context. And I'll tell you, not observing the context gets you in real trouble. I have a friend, a pastor friend up in uh, North Jersey. And he was having some chest pains. So they said, maybe you ought to go get a catheterization. So he went to get a catheterization. And his wife was there with him, you know. And she was in the waiting room. And she was just so stressed out. And she was just so burdened. And she was just so overloaded. Hadn't slept all night, you know. So they take him into the surgical suite. And she's there in the waiting room. Oh, God, I got give me a word, God. You've got to give me a word. So she opens the Bible to Psalm 119, verse 70. Her eyes fall on the verse. Their heart is as fat as grease. Her head almost exploded, I want to tell you. But you see, Psalm 119, verse 70, in context, is the ungodly, the unsaved. It has nothing to do with our physical heart. It has to do with their lack of response, their total lack of response to God in their inner man, in their minds and hearts. And she had stressed herself out to no end because she had jumped on a verse without a context. And it turns out he had nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with him. He was in perfect health. So she did that to herself for nothing. Another rule I might mention is the rule of historical background, the world of the biblical writer. I want to tell you something. A knowledge of Jewish life and Jew Jewish society is absolutely essential. David Flusser, in his book Jewish Sources in Early Christianity, says this, Jesus was a Jew in every way. How was that, that word, how was that idea understood by the people of that day? That's why I've gone to Israel so often. I've made no less than 22 trip, trips to Israel. Not so I can brag about a number. I absolutely need this. I want this. This is why I try to keep abreast of Old Testament, New Testament, archaeological things. and get periodicals and the Jerusalem Post and all of that because I need to know that as a pastor. That's why I have plowed through, plowed through Edersheim's works. I need to know that as a pastor. I need to immerse myself in that biblical world as best I can. Jesus was a Jew in every way. For instance, the fact that the Jewish bill of divorcement, which, by the way, was authorized by Jesus Christ himself, 
the Jewish Bill of Divorcement, which, by the way, we have copies extant today from that period of time. That Jewish Bill of Divorcement gave the right to remarry to the innocent party doing the divorcing sheds a whole new light on the divorce issue, doesn't it? It sheds a whole different light on our understanding of Jesus' use of the word divorce. We've got to understand things in historical context, in literary context. It is also very, very important. In this labor of discernment, we've got to know the rules. Hermeneutics get us into the nature of the interpretive process. We've got to know about metaphors and similes and anthropomorphisms about Hebrew poetry and parallelisms. And we've got to long to be true to the text. Long to be true to the text. Exegesis interprets the text and draws out its meaning. David Wells, in his uh, book, No Place for Truth, says that theologians are notorious for imposing their ideas on the Bible. And I'm going to tell you who's even more notorious is, is TV evangelists imposing... They're not theologians. Some of them haven't even gone to Bible school. Some of them, some of them haven't even done us the courtesy of taking a doctoral course anywhere except from the Dake Bible. And they will impose their ideas on the Bible. We must be aware of that. You've heard of origami? Does anybody know what origami is? It's rope. Is it rope twisting? Paper twisting? Paper folding? Okay, because I was thinking it was like paper twisting, but let's go with my definition. <laughs> because... No, let's go with paper twisting. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're going to go with pa- no. We're going to go with paper twisting because they 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 twist the scriptures to their own destruction. But Benny's into advanced origami. Benny Hinn is. In fact, in fact, Benny Hinn says. Benny Hinn says. I don't know if you know this or not, but when the Egyptians got to the Red Sea, they didn't drown in the waters. God just crushed them with ice. They were crushed by ice. I, I don't know if it was they were cubed to death or what, but, but I mean, the Bible is so clear. The context, reading around it, before and after it, they were drowned in the waters. They sunk to the bottom of the waters like lead, right? The waters covered them over. So if there is ever a Benny Hinn Bible, it's going to look like this. Eskimosis is going to go through this glacier. <laughs> Because of tortured, tortured hermeneutics and because of tortured texts, we've got, we've got this Daddy Warbucks God going on, on television. Daddy Warbucks is our God now. We just go to Daddy Warbucks and we get whatever we want. What'd you get yourself into now? You know, you want health, wealth, and prosperity. Just go to the Daddy Warbucks God. Or because of twisted hermeneutics, we end up 
creating husbands that are more like Roman lictors than they are loving leaders. Just think how blessed you are to have a Christian husband. You'll have some groups. This is what they'll give you with twisted hermeneutics. And then it's because of twisted hermeneutics that we actually can come up with a shepherd movement. A shepherd movement. And yet the, the sheep said, don't tell all straw hat over there, the Lord is my shepherd. And because of twisted hermeneutics, you end up with ministers that look like this. I think he's becoming too preoccupied with the second coming. It took me a year to collect all these, by the way. All right. Let's, uh, let's move on. Uh, let's talk about the time we have left about living in discernment. Because we're not talking about just like a one-shot deal, you study for a week or a month. I, I want to just really challenge you as we kind of funnel this down now to a life of discernment, living in discernment. Now, I, I, I've already stated that to live in discernment, you've got to know the rules of interpretation, and I've mentioned just a few of them. You've got to dust off the, the hermeneutical textbooks, get back to the hermeneutical textbooks. I try to read something on hermeneutics at least once a year just to keep myself in balance so I know I'm not going off the track anywhere. But there are other issues for a person if they really want to live in discernment. Because, you see, it's not just that we learn the rules. And that's important. We must do that. But I like to also suggest that if we're going to live in discernment, we've got to love the Savior. You see, Bible study is an encounter with God. You've got to walk with God. You've got to walk with Jesus. Walk with Him. Because the danger is that we can become careful exegetes and yet become elitist. That there is an elitism. We've got to watch out for that. We've got to watch pride. We've got to watch becoming just cerebral, coming off as puffed up critics. Pride will ruin us. We've got to beware of method alone. We've got to combine heart and love with method. I've been doing this for 30 years. I know you can do it without heart. And I know you can do it without love. And I know you can do it going through the motions. But I want to do it the right way. I want to do it with heart. And I want to do it with love. And I want to do it especially for love of Christ. Love of the Savior. John Owen said, A man who is not inflamed with divine love is an outsider to all theology. Hebrews chapter 12, would you turn there? Talks about the race, and part of that race, of course, is learning the rules. Part of that race is playing by the rules, running by the rules. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily ensnare us. 
and, and, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. See, we can know the rules and be legalists. We can know the rules and lose heart, not have a heart, not have love. Isaiah 66, 2, God looks on those that tremble at His Word and have a contrite heart. I came to the world of counter-cult ministries 15 years ago. I was a novice. I came as a pastor. I came with pastoral concerns. I came with love for research and love for the truth. And I hope none of you mind me saying this, because I'm trying to be honest as I can, but I had a rude awakening, a very rude awakening. I found within the counter-cult ministry a lot of pride. I found a lot of huge egos. I found a lot of personal agendas. I found a lot of strong opinions and not a lot of humility. I found competition, and I found a lot of, of judging, the wrong kind of judging, a lot of in-house judging in the wrong way. My hope and prayer is that EMNR can change some of that. At times, I found the same fury that was directed at cults, directed at brothers. I found the same furor, the same intensity that was directed at cults, directed at brothers. Muhammad Ali was on a flight. This was when he was at the peak of his career. And there was some turbulence, and the seatbelt sign came on. Everybody buckled up. The stewardess went through the aisles checking to see if everyone was buckled up. She noticed that everyone was buckled but Muhammad Ali. So she went to him and said, you must buckle up. He said, Superman don't need no, no belt. She wisely said, Superman don't need no plane either. <laughs> we all, we all need Jesus. And we all need one another. Your end of the boat is my end. And we all need to remember who we are serving. That we're not serving our next book contract, as important as that is. And we are not serving our, our next uh, radio interview, as important as, as that is. We are serving Jesus Christ. We are serving the Lord of glory. We serve Jesus. And so we must let the Savior keep us humble and keep us on balance because the heart of the interpreter always needs to be tender and especially tender toward the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to learn the rules, but we've got to balance it with deep love for the Savior. Proverbs chapter 6 tells us that God hates Pride and arrogance. He hates it. Proverbs 11.2, When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble, with the humble, 
is wisdom. You know, you get proud, you get foolish. Right? You get proud, you get foolish. There was an American guy, a Frenchman, and an Israeli. They were trying to impress one another. So the Americans said, You know the Empire State Building? My grandfather built it. Frenchman said, You know the Eiffel Tower? My grandfather built it. The Israeli said, You know the Dead Sea? My grandfather killed it. <laughs> you get proud, you, you get foolish. You really, really do. A businessman who came home after long hours, many, many days away, many hours on the road, came in in the wee hours in the morning and had a little preschool daughter. She woke up in the night. She heard him come in. Exhausted, he kind of flopped down in his easy chair in the living room and she made her way down the steps and over to him and crawled up into his lap. She said, Daddy, I want you. He said, what do you want now? She said, I don't want anything. I just want you. I think we all need to ask ourselves what we want of Jesus. Do we want what he can give or do we want him? Do we want what he does or do we want him? A year ago, I would have never dreamed that I was not in the shape I thought I was. I was in a gym three mornings a week. And through a series of tests, almost by chance, I, not by chance really, the Lord, they found out that I had seven major blockages in my arteries around my heart. I had no symptoms whatsoever functioning normally, not a symptom. Two of the blockages were more than 90%. A couple more were more than 70, and there were a couple 60s in there. And so, within a matter of weeks, it was shocking to me. I would have, if it doesn't happen to me, it happens to others. Uh, I was in Hahnemann Hospital for surgery, four-way bypass, just a year ago. And uh, the night that... Um, before I was scheduled for surgery, um, it was incredible. I mean, when you go into a hospital, you leave all your dignity at the door. And um, this really big, I mean, huge lady came in to shave me. And they shave you from your neck to your toes. They even shave your toes. Shave your toes. I'll tell you, she got done shaving me. I looked down. It was frightening. I looked like one of Frank Perdue's chickens, I want to tell you. <laughs> it was frightening. But, you know, I thought about that. 
And one day, for all of us, it's all going to come down to that. For every last one of us, we will stand naked and alone before God. Every one of us. When you keep that in mind, It makes you a better interpreter, a more sensitive interpreter. It helps you to live in the right kind of discernment. See, living in discernment is learning the rules and loving the Savior. But there's a last thing that I want to share. It's living with the end in view. I just want to share the true story of Kate Bothwell with you. Kate, a high school junior, greatly admired by both Christian and non-Christian alike. Not only had she given her life to Christ, but she was allowing Christ to be formed in her. One day, she was given the following assignment in her English literature class. State how you would spend your time if you knew that this would be the last week of your life. Her essay was as follows. Today I live. One week from today I die. If a situation such as this came to me, I should probably weep. As soon as I realized that there are so many things to be done, I would try to regain my composure. The first day of my suddenly shortened life, I would use to see all my loved ones and assure them that I love them all very much. On the evening of my first day, I would ask God in the solace of my room to give me strength to bear the rest of my days, to give me his hand so I could walk with him. On the second day, I would awaken early in the morning to see the rising sun which I had so often cast aside to gain a few more moments of coveted sleep. I would continue throughout the day to visit family and friends, telling each one, I love you. Telling them, thank you for the part that you played in my life. On the third day, I'd travel alone in the woods, allowing God's goodness and creation to surround me. I would see undoubtedly for the first time many things that I had not taken the time to notice before. On the fourth day, I would prepare my will. All sentimental things I possess, I would leave to my family and friends. I would spend the rest of my day with my mother. We've always been very close. I would want especially to assure her of my gratitude for the tremendous impact she made on my life. On Friday, the fifth day, my life almost ended. I would spend the time with my pastor, speaking to him of my relationship with Christ, seeking advice for my final hours. I would spend the rest of my day visiting those who are ill, silently being thankful that I have no pain, and yet I know my destiny. On Saturday morning, I would spend my time with a special friend who was going through a difficult time with a broken family, seek to comfort her. The rest of Saturday I would spend with my treasured grandparents and elderly friends, 
seeking their wisdom and sharing my love. Saturday night, I would spend a week in prayer knowing that God was by my side. I would be at peace now knowing that because of Christ, I was soon going to spend eternity in heaven. Upon waking Saturday, uh, Sunday morning, I would make all my last preparation, taking my Bible. I would go to church and spend my last hours in worship, seeking to die gracefully with the hope that my life had influence upon others for his glorious name. The last hour would be spent not in agony, but in perfect harmony of my relationship with Jesus Christ. One week, almost to the day that she handed in the essay, Kay Bothwell was ushered into eternity. Killed in an automobile accident just outside her home in Marion, Indiana. But she lived with the end in mind. You see, there's an old worn cliche. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's old and it's worn, but it's true. Only what's done for Christ will last. Not what we've done for ourselves. Not what we've done for our radio audience or our publishers or our readers necessarily, but only what's done for Christ will last. And I want to tell you something. It is over so quickly. It is over so quickly. Successful people live with the end in view. I'm talking about spiritually successful people. And successful discernment keeps us living with the end in view. And so, to summarize, to judge or not to judge the rights and wrongs of biblical discernment, though there's a massive lack of discernment in the church, we know from the Bible there is the liberty of discernment. We are to judge righteous judgment. We know that this is a labor. It takes work, lifelong work. And if we are to live in discernment, and God would have us live in discernment, we are to learn the rules, love the Savior, and live with the end in view. Let's bow for prayer. We pray with the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me into the way everlasting. Our Father, as we begin this conference, we plead with you for your blessing. We plead with you for your direction, for your guidance. We pray that over these next few days there will not be wasted moments, that we might invest ourselves in learning the rules, in loving the Savior. Our Father, bless workshop leaders. Give them the guidance, strength, power, and direction of your Spirit. Bless those that are ministered to that study. And our Father, may we take from this place a deeper love for the Lord Jesus Christ, a deeper commitment to Him. May we take tools, our Father, to be used of You. 
to be discerners, to live in discernment, and to be used of you to touch other lives in significant and eternal ways. Our Father, without you, we are nothing. We plead with you for your blessing on these coming days. We commit ourselves and these coming hours to you. In Jesus' name, amen.